Welcome to Mission Forward, a podcast exploring how big ideas in social change take hold. My name is Carrie Fox, and I'm your host. Listen in as we talk with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers in social change, and we explore how foundations, philanthropists, and corporate and community leaders are challenging business as usual in order to move missions forward in meaningful and memorable ways. Today, we're taking on the future of news with someone who's got her pulse on the news in a way not many of us can match. I'm super proud to introduce you to Nabia Saeed, president of The Markup, which is a nonprofit, data-driven, investigative journalism publication, illuminating how powerful institutions use technology to reshape society. Nabia has been described as one of the best emerging free speech lawyers by Forbes magazine. She served as assistant general counsel at BuzzFeed. She worked on legal access issues at Guantanamo Bay, and she's the co-founder of the Media Freedom and Information Access Legal Clinic at Yale Law School, plus being the president of the markup. Perhaps most importantly, Nabia is a lifelong Girl Scout, which makes me even more endeared to her. Hang on for what will be a great conversation. the way that we try to start most of these, which is really to get to know you and the path that you've taken to get here, which has clearly been a really incredible ride for you so far. So I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about what has driven you to do this work and what's brought you to to the markup where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is such a fantastic podcast and asking exactly the right questions in a moment of lots of questions being asked in our society. So so thanks for the opportunity. So I've always been a news hound. When I was a little kid, one of my favorite shows besides Sesame Street was PBS News Hour. I was a very cool child, obviously. Um, but looking at the media as and journalism as we see it today, I think something really interesting for me started happening about a decade ago. So all of a sudden, the iPhone was everywhere. They were starting to get more popular. We were all carrying around supercomputers in our pockets. Um, these companies that now, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, Google, they were everywhere, but they were about to leap off the screen into our hands in a very different way. And these are companies that in the last decade have, you know, built businesses that have eaten the business model of journalism alive, right? So this interesting mobile boom started to happen. And around that time, I had just started the nation's first media law clinic um, at Yale Law School that was designed to provide legal services to journalists. And the reason for that was there were all of a sudden a whole lot more freelance journalists. Everyone was realizing that they could publish on the web and they didn't have to go through the New York Times. You could just directly speak to people, and that was possible. Technology allowed that to happen. Um, and also, media companies, their businesses weren't exactly keeping up. They weren't being the businesses they were in the 1980s, right? And of course, now these competitors, like tech companies, are coming in. So I, I started this clinic to provide legal services and just realized, oh my God, there's so much happening here because if journalists don't have the legal services they need, 
they're not going to be able to be a watchdog for a big government or governments throughout the world. And increasingly, they're not going to be able to be the watchdogs for these companies who are often bigger than governments themselves, right? So it became this really interesting question of, if you believe that journalism is the fourth estate, it keeps everyone honest, that transparency is important, and all of a sudden journalists are outgunned, what do you do about that? Around that same time, uh, Julia Angwin, who is our editor-in-chief, was uh, she had published this sort of groundbreaking look at privacy online. She'd won a ton of awards for this series called What They Know. She'd won a Pulitzer for, for reporting on corporate corruption. So she was familiar with the power of these growing businesses. And these sort of two seeds of like, okay, we we're seeing a change in the business model here. And how do we make sure that journalists can actually keep up and cover these big these big institutions is sort of what's in the water that led to the creation of the markup. That is a really important point that I'm not sure enough people recognize is the amount of risk that journalists take on, and especially freelance journalists, right? When we're thinking about where they're putting themselves and the risk they're taking on to be able to tell a story, deeply tell a story. So I I appreciate the work that you um, started doing there at Yale and have certainly continued into the into the markup. You just touched on something that's really important and is really at the the intersection of this podcast. And and certainly now, this season, as we think about the world that we are in, COVID, recession, so many things in our world um, bubbling up in a in a really big and and very, very important way, but very specifically tied to the health of our democracy and the future of democracy. And we've been looking at a lot of different industries and how in great crisis so much innovation comes. And we had been seeing pre-2020 a lot of innovation happening in journalism, um, maybe in some ways more than we were seeing in some other industries that have really fast-tracked their innovation in recent months, right, if we're thinking about healthcare or higher ed. But journalism has been really driving in terms of what's the model that will sustain good, quality, effective, unbiased, independent journalism well into the future, I want to get your take on that because the markup is a nonprofit news outlet. And so a lot of folks don't understand the distinction between nonprofit news and you know, what, what, what the other is uh, in terms of a for-profit newsroom. Yeah, no, it, it's a fascinating time to be in the news because everyone's experimenting with these business models. So as a nonprofit news organization, we have two driving uh, desires. One is of course, sustainability, like we want to be sustainable, but the other is impact. Like we aren't here to make a profit. We're here to serve the public. And that's always sort of been the undercurrent of how we understand journalism. But when you're a for-profit company, you also have this other need to make your shareholders happy, to turn a profit for your investors. And what that can do is that it can sort of muddle the value of we're, we're here for the public. We're here to serve you. We report to you. Um, and if the public isn't getting the benefit of our journalism, then we're doing something wrong. In 2020, I think it's impossible to ignore the the idea that n- these institutions, journalism amongst them, haven't always served everyone. They've served some people, but a lot of voices have been excluded. A lot of people have not had a seat at the table. And for us, I think reporting on technology, which has also had that problem, right? Technology has also had a problem where not everyone's been at the table. Things have been designed 
for people without talking to them, it's really important for us at the markup to design an organization that's like, when we say we serve the people, we serve all the people. And we serve the people through providing stories that say, here's how the world has been constructed. Here's how decisions are being made about you and for you. For example, here's how this algorithm is deciding whether or not you get a COVID test or what emails show up in your inbox or whether you get served with something that Facebook has tagged as pseudoscience. They know it's pseudoscience and it's still being served to you. We're going to demystify that because that's our job. Like our job is to explain the entire architecture of the world, which is largely fueled by technology. And and I will certainly um, speak to that. You know, every time I I check out the markup or I get the newsletter delivered to my inbox, there's stories like why do voting machines break on election day? What are cloud kitchens? Right. And every time I read one, I have one of these feelings of like a big bubble has burst because the the truth has just been told to me. It's just been served to me in a way that I could have never realized. And I want us to think about that cloud kitchens run is such an interesting story, right? Like in this time when so many people are, are um, uh, ordering food to be delivered to them that they think they're ordering from a local mom and pop and then, until they realize that it's actually, uh, you know, a much larger chain that's behind that. And, and I'd love for you to talk about a little bit, you know, how do you determine what stories you're taking on and the markup has a really interesting process for then how you dig into those stories too. Yeah, absolutely. So for those stories, we look at the world and think, so where are the areas in which people uh, might not understand what's happening behind the scenes, but this is something that's really important to their life. So a great example is right after the murder of George Floyd, when many people in our democracy were taking to the streets to protest, um, one of our reporters, Maddie Varner, was like, you know, I think a lot of people who are first-time protesters don't realize that that phone you carry in your pocket is also a surveillance device, is also something that the police can ask you to hand over, um, or th- that they do ask you to hand over, that it's a very vulnerable device. So why don't we make a guide that says, how do you, you know, how do you protect your phone at a protest? Um, and she thought of that, wrote it it up in a couple of days because we have reporters with this deep bench of knowledge. Uh, we did an Instagram live on Saturday morning as people were going out for their first protest and the guide ended up being wheat pasted on the walls around Brooklyn as, as a live guide for people to, to protect themselves. And so we really stop and think in this moment, what are things that are happening that people would probably want to know a little bit more about. So it's very responsive to the moment. And I think that's actually our special sauce, right? So we have a newsroom that's half technologists and half investigative reporters. There's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of deep knowledge. But how do you respond to a a news cycle that's going a mile a minute? You have to figure out, like, what do people need to know? And so to your point about, you know, ghost kitchens, we know everyone's ordering food. People talk about it all the time. There's also a real concern about what's going to happen with restaurants, what's their bottom line, what's going to happen to restaurant workers. Let's just pull back the curtain a little bit. And so we do that. You brought up our sort of special method. We have a, we really believe in showing your work at the markup because trust is very important for us. We want our readers not just to trust us because we say so, which is what institutional journalism has done for many decades. We say like, you should trust us because we're going to tell you how we did this. And how we did this is that we go out there, we build data sets, we build tools, we build a technologically sound way of understanding the world. We don't just pull three anecdotes, right? We pull like 30,000 anecdotes of something. We do a lot of deep work. 
We ask experts and then experts who disagree with us to kick the tires on our findings. Um, and so, you know, we call that bulletproofing our work. We're like, tell us how we're getting this wrong. And if it's not persuasive, we feel like we're right. And then we publish showing our work. Here's who we talk to. We name our sources. We, we like to put all of our data out there. And so if people disagree with us, they can tell us and we'll engage with it. But we're being transparent to encourage that process along. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of my team at Mission Partners. We'll be back after a short break. But first, here's an update from my team. Hi, I'm Bridget Pooley, Chief Operating Officer at Mission Partners. Has 2020 thrown your strategic communications plans out the window? Do you need to get your team back on track for the start of a new year? We can help. At Mission Partners, we believe the best solutions require a clear vision of the end results. Through our interactive, immersive, and virtual visioneering sessions, we will guide you and your team to alignment around shared values and a shared vision, providing new perspective to your stickiest problems and mapping key actions to get you there. Visit mission.partners backslash let's go for more information on our signature virtual visioneering sessions. of these news readers that is always trying to check my bias in in reading my news, right? So I look a little deeper to see who's the publisher of this organization, who are they owned by, what's the bias that they bring to it. And um, pretty regularly, I do kind of an audit on that news. And I'm thinking about a poll that came out um, pretty recently, actually, it was a a Gallup night poll that talked about bias in news that um, people significantly think that they are, well, they are much more worried about the bias in other people's news than they are about theirs, right? It's easy to say, oh, there's no bias in what I'm reading, but I'm really concerned about the bias in what you're reading. How do you ensure that you're taking the bias out of your process too? Oh, it's a great, it's a great question. And I think that's where this bulletproofing aspect of our three-step process is really helpful because if, you know, whenever you have data points of any type, you got to look at it and say, okay, so I have these facts. What's the alternative narrative for these facts, right? So you, what's the other explanation for what's going on here? And that's where being really expertise focused is helpful because you can go to people and say, okay, so this is what we found. Is there a piece that's missing? And if someone says, yes, the piece that's missing is this and it's unpersuasive, then you can feel comfortable choosing a different narrative, but you have to do the work of actually interrogating, is there another explanation for this? And that is something that I I think it's hard to do when we're juggling so many things, when, uh, you know, the world is moving, there's new news articles pinging your phone and your computer and a lot of things, a lot of demands on your attention, which is why we say as a news organization, like, we're going to take on that work. We will do it for you. We're making a promise to you that we do it and you can hold us accountable to that. So we're trying to ease that process along. But for me, when I very personally, when I read news stories, I'll think like, okay, so who are they quoting? What might be the reason this person would want to be quoted in this news article? Like, is there another agenda here? Who and who's left out? I think the who's left out question is 
a really big deal when we think about politics, when we think about our society, when we think about the equitable distribution of resources, like who's at the table. And if you start there, I think you have a really interesting um, journey in assessing bias. And and I think papers on the left, center, right, like all across the spectrum, all have that problem of like not everybody is sitting at this table and you have to understand why. You know, I want to dig in a little bit more there because there was something you said at the beginning that stuck with me and you're touching on it now too, but it's, it comes back to kind of who holds the pen and who holds the power as the journalist and thinking about how little diversity there has been for so long in the newsroom and the privilege of those who have had the opportunity to work in the newsroom, right? Whether it's an unpaid internship or whether it's the, the connections, whatever it is. But what do you see changing about, first of all, how the markup is doing it, but how journalism generally is starting to address issues of of equity inside the newsroom? I think the first step is talking about it. And that's just the first step. So one really interesting thing that's happening right now is that the big newsrooms are being forced to reckon with it because their employees and also their subscribers, their base, have a place to go to articulate this complaint. So you'll see these campaigns that will happen on Twitter, that will happen on social media, where people are saying, who's writing this? This doesn't relate to my life. What's going on here? And that's, uh, you know, one benefit of technology is that it does introduce that. Now at the markup, so as a woman of color, I've been very critical of this for every newsroom I've worked in, um, and just been acutely aware that there is this idea of objectivity um, that is an important value. It's imp- we just talked about bias. It's important to, to acknowledge, recognize, minimize bias where you can. But it the opposite of it, this idea of objectivity obscures like who's objective, right? Who's objective when we're talking about race? Who's objective when we're talking about wealth? And is that actually just reinforcing some sort of systematic problem? And so I've always been very... Um, critical of this. And now all of a sudden, I'm the president of a media organization. And I'm like, time to put my money where my mouth is, right? So I did a lot of soul searching of, of, you know, I think I have my understandings of um, what's right to do and who we invite in the room and how we write a job description and whether we require a college degree, we do not and how we um, invite in, in, you know, formerly incarcerated people, we explicitly do. How, How do we do this? And then I stopped and I was like, well, what's my bias? I came up through elite institutions. I've operated in particular circles. I think I know how to do this because I happen to be a woman of color, but I'm a South Asian American woman. Like, what do I actually understand about the Black experience? What do I actually understand about the Latinx experience? Like, I I don't. So... I decided that I was going to hire a team of experts, um, including a, a PhD in social psychology focusing on bias, to come in and do a full equity anti-racist audit of our employee handbook, of our hiring policies, of how we structure pay and pay transparency. And I brought them in a couple of months ago, and they are working right now to redesign our entire organization from scratch. It is not cheap. And it is one of those funny things where when I tell other folks in news, they're like, why are you doing that now? You just started. And I'm like, because I want to build this in from the ground up. Like this needs to be in our foundation, in the air that we breathe in this organization. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to get it right, but it means that it's going to force me to think about it all the time and remove myself from my own bias of thinking about how, 
how, you know, that should be designed because I'm bringing in experts into the room, which is the markup way. And gosh, how much that speaks about, you know, talking about this idea of transformative social change, right? Like to really change a culture and not just, we're not just talking about one organization's culture, but a sector's culture, an industry's culture, right? You've got to dig in really deep and be vulnerable as a leader in that process. And I'm curious if that process, uh, this is probably a silly question, has been difficult, but maybe, you know, what are some of the the barriers that you've faced or the challenges you've faced that um, have been worth it, right? And have make, continue to make it worth it to do the work the way you are doing the work. You know, I, I think the most potentially painful and the most rewarding thing is the same, which is when you open yourself up to criticism, it is terrifying when you're like, Hey, I'm going to hand over my employee handbook, which many people just leave dusty on a shelf. I'm going to hand it over to you. And I want you to interrogate every piece of this and tell me what works and what doesn't work. That's a scary thing. And you know, we did that scary thing twice. So I wrote our, our employee handbook. And as a lawyer, I know exactly how to do that. And then I op- I handed it to our entire staff as part of a public notice and comment where I was like, this isn't final yet. I want all of you to read this and make sure you're okay with these policies. Do you understand what it means to be an at-will employee? Do you understand like what are the conditions that would lead to someone's having to leave the markup? Do you understand how to blow the whistle in this organization and how power works? And you know, people never want to talk about that openly. And I drafted it all and said, tell me what you think. And if you don't like it, let's talk about it. And I had a lot of conversations as a result of that, um, that were hard where I'm like, Hey, like, you know, I also run a business. So, so there are certain balances here that we have to make, but it's fair for you to call me on that and to make me explain what I'm balancing, right? Like why we would do it this way or, you know, when I say if there's a harassment complaint, we have to bring in a third party investigator. What that means is I'm, I have to put my money where my mouth is, which means I'm not going to be able to make maybe another hire or do something else I wanted to do. And that's hard. It's hard. And then we all agreed on this handbook and now I'm handing it to these experts, right? These, uh, these, these bias experts and they're interrogating every word. Like, why did you say this? And why did you do that? And I always think I'd much rather have that done the right way early on. Um, with with people who want to make you be better and co-create with you than to be ripped to shreds later or just have to defend something that you never thought about. So it's been it's been fun, but terrifying. <laughs> well, but what I also suspect is that that internal process and that inner work that you're all doing as a team, right, to collaboratively think about how you're building and the rules that you are setting collectively are going to have an effect on then how you do your external work, how you do your reporting, how you build your your organization and build your your network. So um, let's let's go back there then for a second and think about you know what's your vision for the future of the markup? What impact do you think it could have, maybe is already having, on the future of investigative journalism? Um, I think we use technology to investigate technology. And that is something that we want to enable other folks to do as well. So when we investigate technology, we create these tools, We created this tool called Blacklight, where anyone in the world can go to Blacklight, put in any URL, and the URL will spit out uh, the, the readout from Blacklight will tell you all of the third parties that happen to be tracking you on that website. So it'll tell you who's logging your keystrokes, 
what are the cookies that are happening on that page? Where is all this sort of invisible trade that happens every time you go to a website where they're extracting tidbits of you and you're getting information or the ability to buy dog food or clothes or groceries or education because our whole lives are mediated by screens now. We want to make that invisible trade visible, right? So what we're doing is we're saying, we have the technological chops, we're giving this to you, because the first step to changing the world is to understand the world we're in. And we could tell you about it, or we could let you decide for yourself what's interesting. And let's say you find, you know, you're like, why does Purina dog food, like, why does Purina.com take all of my information? Tell us. Tell us you want to know, and then we'll go check that out for you. And so this this conversation, this um, this transparency with the people you report to, because I consider it like institutionally, I, re- I think I report to my staff. The org chart is the org chart, but I'm accountable to them. I think for us as an organization, we have that relationship with the people. We report to the people. And so we give them the tools. We let them investigate too. And then we have this conversation, this feedback loop with them, um, which I think is really special. And frankly, technology in the form of social media and also email and that sort of thing helps us do that in a way that wasn't as easy if it was, uh, you know, the 1950s and you're writing letters to the editor or something. You also know that I am racing to blacklight after this after this conversation and we'll probably have nightmares tonight. Absolutely. Uh, but that gets to the point, yes. right, that you said earlier of it's all about understanding what's happening behind the scenes. And today, more than ever, we really have to understand what's happening behind the scenes, right? Because it's easy to lose, lose sight of, of what actually is going on. We really believe in giving people agency, not apathy, right? So it, it would be so possible to look at the world and say, oh my God, everyone's tracking me. It's so terrible. There's nothing I can do about it. So I'm just going to go back to watching Netflix. And what we're trying to do is say, no, 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 we're going to give you specific ways to understand what's happening and then go and ask, like use Blacklight to look at a website and then go ask them, why are you doing this? Why do you need to know my information? can I stop this? I don't want this. So we're giving people tools to navigate the world. Um, in that same vein, we have a, we're launching a tool called citizen browser and what citizen browser does, it speaks to something that we all sort of in our hearts know, which is I might be reading totally different news and getting totally different information than my neighbor, than a person that I run into at the grocery store, uh, a fellow citizen of mine. And, Unlike TV, you know, in television, you kind of know what's on what channel at what time. When it comes to information you're getting from the internet, you don't necessarily know because there's no equivalent of like Nielsen ratings for Facebook and YouTube. So we built it. So we built a browser that people can download and use. And what it'll do is it will scan all of the news stories that you're receiving that are being pushed to you. And it'll go into a dashboard. And so the dashboard that we're building, and it will, we strip out your identifying information. We take privacy very, very, very seriously at this organization, which is why this was very hard to build. Um, and, and you'll be able to see through our dashboards, like what is a 35-year-old white man seeing in Atlanta, Georgia? And maybe he actually didn't get news about George Floyd or Tamir Rice, or someone else. And if he did, maybe he got really biased news from a place that isn't actually a news organization. And it's a content farm run by some, you know, international meddler of sorts, we'd be able to start to detect that in our dashboard and see where these fissures are. And then use that to say, okay, how is this happening? Where is this happening? How is it? And, and ours is virtually real time. 
very close to real time, which is important to do in this election cycle and also in the middle of a pandemic when health information is misinformation is, is spreading too. So those are the kinds of tools where we say like, what can we, we know something weird is happening, but how can we with specificity get really in the details and know exactly what it is? Because that's the only way out. That's the only way out of it. So you've offered some very practical tools that people could um, take essentially today to learn more and to uncover what's really happening behind the scenes. So where do folks go to learn more and to um, maybe use some of these tools? Please come to themarkup.org. We're going to have all of our all of our tools are linked from there. You can also see our, our articles and our stories. If you follow us on social media, you'll be able to see sort of our conversations around um, a, a lot of what we're finding and what our audience is finding using these tools. Um, so, but please, like, I, I, we really mean it, like be in conversation with us. If you see something and you're like, I don't understand, is this legal? Why is this happening? What's going on here? Let us know. We are checking our tips inbox, um, I mean, many, many, many times a day. Because again, we, we report to you. We report to the public. And so if you want to know about it, and you wish someone had the tech chops to really dig in deep, not with three examples, but to find you 30,000 examples, we'll do it. So come to us and find us. And I will say on your behalf, information is power, right? But power does not come for free. Absolutely. (laughs) And so as a nonprofit organization, we also need to support your work, right? We need to invest in your work. And so as we've, as we reflected on this conversation, I mean, you are really digging in and challenging business as usual, as it relates to how the news gets delivered to us. So I'm curious, as you think about moving your big mission forward, right? What are the things that, um, or maybe what are the ways that we could support you? What do you need to keep moving that mission forward? I'm so glad you brought that up. So we are building a uh, a movement of sort of join the markup where we want people and this will this will launch near the end of October, early November, right in time for the election, where we want people to be able to plug into our work in, in a variety of ways. If you want to give us $5 every month and toss a little our way, we'll happily take that. If you say, hey, I actually want to help you with your news gathering. Well, we filed public records requests in all 50 states, and we're getting a lot of documents. If you want to help us dig through those, we would love your eyes. When we're going through spreadsheet on spreadsheet on spreadsheet of data, and we want someone to, to dig into it, or maybe you have an angle that we're not publishing on, right? You can jump in and take a look. We'll, and we'll open this up so you're, you're actually able to co-create journalism with us. For the stories that we've published, we publish our data sets. So if you're sitting in New Mexico and you're like, hey, I really wish um, I could translate this story to my local context, we're giving you the tools to do it. Come take them, take things from our GitHub, take the, the, the data that we're posting and localize it for your own universe. And we'll encourage you, we'll help you do that. We're planning data debrief calls where you can call and actually talk to our reporters who will walk you through how we did something. Our dream is like, we're equipping you with what you need and we're here to help you along the way. And and so there's a lot of ways to plug in with us. You can you can help you can help our journalism financially. You can help us practically by giving us, you know, some of your time, attention and wisdom. Um, but we we want to work with you. Well, I am so grateful for what you do and how you do it, for the risks you and your journalists are taking to deliver the news and to to uncover the real story behind what we're reading. So thank you for being with us today and good luck. I look forward to keep watching the the markup grow and take off. 
Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for all the inspiration this podcast provides on on how we're all trying to figure out our ways on our missions forward. Thank you. 